Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 13. The Regiment Disbands but Lives On. The preceding chapters have told the fighting story of the Glider Pilot Regiment, and all that remains is to give a brief outline of its activities before it was finally disbanded in 1957. Before the cessation of hostilities, and for some time after, the regiment was kept together and used in various capacities in many sectors of the world. India. In accordance with the conditions agreed on when our improvisation scheme was adopted after the heavy losses at Arnhem, in India the regiment came under the command of the Royal Air Force, who employed it in a number of ways, not the least important being for the resupply of China. It had been planned to use gliders in an attack on Malaya, and I had been sent out to India to study the terrain, and had lectured there to both Mountbatten's and General Auchinleck's staffs. Little was known of airborne warfare in that sphere, but an Indian Airborne Division was in the process of being organised and finally took shape as the 44th Indian Airborne Division, commanded by Major General E. Down, CBE. It was very widely dispersed and must have been most difficult to command. It was soon found that the wooden type of glider, such as the Horser and Hamilcar, was unsuitable for operation in the Far East because of the climate, and the glider crews therefore changed over to the American Waco gliders. At about the same time, the glider pilots learned that their passengers would be Indian troops and that, in the event of their officers becoming casualties, the glider pilots would have to take command. There was, of course, nothing new about this, since on many occasions in Europe, pilots had taken over command in emergencies. Nevertheless, because of the different personnel involved and the new type of terrain, courses in leadership, on jungle survival, mountain warfare, trekking and skiing, the last named for action in the Himalayas or in Kashmir, were arranged for them and were enthusiastically attended by the pilots. Three airfields were developed at Bulanpur, Raipur and Kiangi Road and a great many Wacos were flown to those airfields from over 300 miles away. Here, unfortunately, a cyclone wrecked a large number of them and there was considerable delay in replacing them. While waiting for the replacements, however, training still went on. There were endurance trials of 10 consecutive hours flying and of flying at a height of 10,000 feet and the Indian troops, in preparation for the planned attack on the Japanese, were given lifts to acclimatise them to airborne operations. Then, just when tension had reached breaking point and the troops seemed in sight of going into action, hostilities against Japan ceased, 
the contribution of the glider pilot regiment to the war of 1939-45 to had come to an end. Palestine, Berlin airlift, Korea, Malaya. After the cessation of hostilities, the regiment ran down rapidly until only three squadrons remained in the United Kingdom and one in Palestine. It was in the September of 1945 that the glider pilot regiment was ordered to Palestine with the 6th Airborne Division and by Christmas the personnel were making last preparations for the voyage. There is no need here to go into the rights and wrongs of the unhappy events that were taking place in that country, but it must be said that there are few forces in the world capable of exercising so much self-discipline, patience and control under provocation as the men who served in the British Army in Palestine in the period that preceded Britain's relinquishment of her mandate over Palestine. Among these men were members of the glider pilot regiment whose main duties were the local defence of the airfields on which they were stationed, duties which included nightly patrols around the airfields and nearby villages and settlements, the guarding of arms and ammunition, security checks which sometimes involved house-to-house search and divisional searches which were serious affairs since they were often ordered with the object of finding terrorists and caches of arms. The men of the regiment acquitted themselves as they had done during the war and I can offer no greater praise than that. By 1948, the regiment found itself down to a headquarters and training squadron based at Aldershot and two operational squadrons, A and B, which were based at Waterbeach and Netheraven, respectively. A Hamilcar flight, which was part of B Squadron, existed at Fairford. Fargo, by this time, was no longer the glider pilot regimental depot and, in fact, was soon to disappear completely from the face of Salisbury Plain. With the closing down of various RAF elementary flying training schools, all potential glider pilots eventually became the charge of RAF Booker, near High Wycombe, a pleasant little grass field station, equipped with tiger moths and osters, the latter for the use of trainee Air OP pilots, who eventually finished their advanced training at the Air OP school at Middle Wallop. The glider pilot's advanced training was carried out at RAF Upper Hayford, where a conversion was made straight from Tigers to Horser Twos, without the intermediate stage on Hotspurs. In late 1948, glider flying came to a standstill with the commandeering of nearly all tug aircraft for the Berlin airlift. As much flying training as was possible was carried out with the few Tiger Moths in the squadron, but soon it became obvious that the airlift was to be more than just a two-month affair and that it was therefore necessary to find some other means of occupying the crews. The CO of the regiment, Lieutenant Colonel C.J. Deeds, managed to persuade the RAF that a worthwhile job the glider pilots could perform was to assist transport command crews flying in and out of Berlin. One flight of pilots drawn from both squadrons therefore attended an air quartermaster course at RAF Hartford and on New Year's Day 1949 the flight reported to RAF Wunsdorf in Germany, ostensibly to help with the colossal loading problem which existed at all the airlift fields. It was soon apparent, however, that the rear airfield supply officers had the situation well under control and that these key new air quartermasters were not needed. In no time, however, each York crew, short of a second pilot, found itself with a red beret in the right-hand seat, and after convincing the captains that they did know something about flying, the glider pilots were warmly accepted as members of the respective squadrons. The glider pilots found that they were able to get a great deal of instrument flying, which, apart from being useful to themselves, was of considerable help to the aircraft captains. A second glider pilot flight existed at RAF Schleswig, where most of the pilots were able to join Hastings crews, many of whom had only recently been tug crews on Halifaxes back in the UK. A friendly rivalry ensued between Schleswig and Wunsdorf flights, particularly between the respective flight commanders. All types of weather were encountered, and only the very worst of conditions ever brought the lift to a stop. 
The York aircraft landed at Gatow in Berlin, while the Hastings landed at the new airfield by the name of Tegel in the French sector. Every conceivable commodity had to be lifted into the hard-pressed city, but after the initial difficulties had been overcome, it was obvious that the lift could succeed even if it had to go on indefinitely. Besides food and clothing, large amounts of coal and even petroleum and other liquid fuels were transported by civil air tankers. Operation Plainfair, as the lift was more properly known, was a tremendous operation in which every glider pilot was proud to take part. One unfortunate accident marred the glider pilot's memories of Operation Plainfair. This was the death of Staff Sergeant Toll in a Hastings crash while taking off from Tegel. He was buried with the rest of the crew in the military cemetery near the Olympic Stadium in the British sector of Berlin. It was not unusual for the empty aircraft flying out of Berlin to carry service passengers. On one occasion, after offloading a cargo of dehydrated vegetables, one aircraft captain was ordered to report to the tarmac in front of the tower where a VIP was to be picked up. It was apparent from the size of the party accompanying the VIP that he was a very senior officer. The aircraft was duly parked in the right place, passenger in planing steps were pushed up to the door, and the crew stood alongside the aircraft to receive their passenger. From the entourage stepped Field Marshal Lord Wavell, dressed as Colonel of the Black Watch. He was met by the aircraft captain, Flight Lieutenant White of 206 Squadron RAF, who in turn introduced the crew, one of whom, the second pilot, was Captain Downward, the glider pilot flight commander at Wunsdorf. While the remainder of the crew set about preparing the aircraft for flight, the second pilot, whilst answering numerous questions on why he, as a soldier, was part of an aeroplane crew, attempted to brief the great man on normal safety precautions and emergency drills, and finally to fit a parachute on him. An observer-type chute had been provided where only the harness needed to be worn during flight. Captain Downward fitted and adjusted the shoulder straps and then reached down to pull the leg straps from the back, through the passenger's legs and ultimately to the securing box in the centre of the body. Downward's sudden embarrassment had been anticipated by the numerous press photographers whose fusillade of flashes recorded a moment of horror when the harness fitting was brought to a halt by the realisation that the field marshal was not properly dressed for this part of the journey. He was wearing his kilt. The AOC, who was in the farewell party, came to the rescue by issuing a quick verbal amendment to Air Ministry flying orders by allowing VIPs dressed in kilts to fly with only the shoulder straps adjusted until such time as the captain considered an emergency was imminent. Leg straps would then be properly adjusted. After the end of the airlift, glider flying was resumed and trainee pilots who had been waiting for over a year to go on to the heavy glider conversion stage were able to complete their training and to gain their wings. The courses were run at RAF Upper Hayford, which was also the parachute school. Since the days of the central landing establishment at Ringway in 1940, the Wheel of Fortune appeared to have turned a full circle, for now both parts of the airborne forces, gliders and parachutes, were back to small selective establishments and once again sharing the same school. Similarly, Netheravon became a joint user station for the continuation training of both regiments. A land-air warfare demonstration, which was periodically staged at Netheravon, was exercise Mephisto. This was a display of parachute troop dropping, heavy equipment dropping, free dropping and a full display of glider equipment, including an exhibition of a glider snatch in the Waco glider by Staff Sergeant Bell. This pilot could keep up an almost non-stop relay with the Waco. The tow rope, which was made of nylon to give extra elasticity, was looped at one end and the other end was plugged into the towing point on the glider. The loop was arranged so that a length of rope was suspended from the tops of two posts about 30 feet apart. 
The tug aircraft, which had to be specifically adapted for this role, then flew towards the loop which it aimed to engage with a rigid boom protruding downwards from the fuselage. As contact was made, the hook on the tip of the boom was allowed to pay out on the end of a steel cable which was wound round a winch inside the tug aircraft. By carefully breaking the feed out of the cable, the whole tow line between tug and glider would eventually become steady. The whole snatch operation required very skillful operation by the winch operator as well as precision flying by the pilots at either end of the combination. Too hasty a breaking action of the winch while paying out usually resulted in the cable snapping and the glider being placed in difficulties while at low height. The glider pilot regiment, however, was not the only unit to suffer embarrassment arising from the Mephisto demonstrations. The heavy equipment drops arranged by the Army Air Transport Development Centre frequently provided breathtaking spectacles as jeeps and field guns were released on clusters of outsized parachutes from transport aircraft. The occasional failure of one or more parachutes usually resulted in a rapid descent of the load with devastating consequences as it struck the ground. The free dropping of non-breakable items such as bales of blankets, MT spares suitably padded and vehicle tyres all helped to keep the spectators on their toes, particularly if a large three-tonner tyre recovering from its initial impact with the ground by bouncing to a height of about 100 feet, then decided to change direction towards the crowd. In 1950, the glider pilot regiment suffered a further reduction by elimination of A and B squadrons and the training squadron, becoming a single squadron as from the 1st of September. This squadron, known as the 1st Independent Squadron, the glider pilot regiment, was commanded by Major R. King Clark, MC, who pre-war had achieved notoriety by being the first army officer to troop himself overseas in his own private aircraft when he flew his Miles Whitney direct to Egypt in 1937 to join the 1st Battalion of the Manchester Regiment. The second in command of the new squadron was Major Stoner and the three flight commanders, Captains Johnson, Brown and Downward. The regiment, which for so long had worn the distinctive badge of the Eagle surmounting the initials AAC, the whole surrounded by a laurel wreath, adopted a new badge which still retained the eagle but incorporated a scroll bearing the title of the regiment in place of the earlier wreath and AAC. The new badge was more appropriate in that it gave the regiment its correct title. It had long been a favourite question by people asking outside the regiment, why does the glider pilot regiment also call itself Army Air Corps? The latter title had been the name given to airborne forces in general when they were first started in 1940 and then became a record office nomenclature which embraced Glider Pilot Regiment, Parachute Regiment and Special Air Service. The Glider Pilot Regiment, being the first born, kept the Army Air Corps badge while the other regiments designed new emblems of their own. In 1950, the nomenclature Army Air Corps was dropped and was replaced by the record office title of Glider Pilot and Parachute Corps. The occasion of the formation of the 1st Independent Squadron of the Glider Pilot Regiment Incidentally, the second time in the life of the regiment that this title had been used was marked by a small ceremony at Aldershot when, in the presence of Brigadier Chatterton, the old flag was struck and the new one, bearing the new regimental badge, was hoisted in its place. The old squadrons marched off to disbandment, followed by the new squadron, whose task it was to keep alive the glider flying technique as a form of carder. The salute of the march past was taken by Lieutenant Colonel Deeds, OBE, MC. So departed the last of the wartime squadrons. The first independent squadron continued to fly gliders, all horses, and the continuation training was carried out at Netheraven. No elementary flying courses were held and no new pilots joined the regiment. It was apparent that the role of gliders in modern warfare was disappearing fast, though the parachuting side of airborne forces still appeared to have a future. 
It was obvious that the slow-moving glider tug combination was no match for modern weapons and fighter techniques. This point was brought home forcibly in an airborne exercise when, for the first time, jet fighters made short work of the glider formations. About this time, the new Hastings, of which we had heard so much, came into the airborne support role and some towing was carried out behind this aircraft. The verdict of this trial was that it was damned hard work for the glider pilots, who were finding themselves being tugged around the sky about 40 knots faster than usual. The horser didn't appear to be very happy with either, and the effects of the strain became apparent in increasing unserviceability. And so the towing continued as before, behind the faithful old Dakota, which could cope happily with a lightly laden horser, but was no match for the type of hauls seen during the war from UK to the continent. The training of the pilots of this lone squadron in normal ground tactics presented a further problem, as there was no way of exercising as a company of infantry. The scale of equipment wasn't designed for this role, and of course the number of men, both officers and other ranks, hardly made up a normal rifle platoon. It was decided, therefore, on the instigation of the commander of 16 Parachute Brigade Group to attach one flight of glider pilots to each of the three parachute battalions for purposes of training when OC 1st Independent Squadron so desired. This arrangement worked very smoothly and the flights were looked after extremely well by the respective battalions. Besides gaining some valuable field training, some close friendships were built up in the officers' and sergeants' messes and Aldershot, even if for only a short while, became the accepted home of both regiments. During this period, quite a few glider pilots volunteered to do parachute courses, though unfortunately it was not possible to even up this exchange by offering any of the parachute regiment NCOs a few hours pilot training. In 1951, the glider was officially doomed, and it was clear there was little purpose in continuing with this expensive form of continuation training, even as a carder. The problem, of course, was what was to happen to the 30-odd pilots. Some could be taken back into their parent regiments, though quite a few, particularly among the NCOs, were not so well placed, and the very suggestion that they should finish flying was strongly resented. However, an answer was not long in coming, for at this time the Commonwealth Division was forming in Korea, and its GOC, Major General Cassells, requested two flights of light aircraft. The first flight was made available almost straight away by the close proximity of 1903 Air OP Flight RAF in Hong Kong. As a gunner flight, their task was almost entirely devoted to supporting the Commonwealth Divisional Artillery, which comprised British, Canadian and New Zealand field regiments. The second flight was not immediately available and in fact was not even formed. And so, in July 1951, a new type of flight was formed at Middle Wallop and was named 1913 Light Liaison Flight RAF. This was entirely a glider pilot flight and basically was all infantry so far as the pilots were concerned. The flight was commanded by Captain P.A. Downward, who had one officer, Captain A.T.C. Brown, a second in charge, and six staff sergeants and sergeants. 1913 flight went into immediate training in North Wales, where it was felt that some value could be gained from flying around the mountainous areas, which were the nearest approach to the Korean terrain. Having carried out as much training as time would allow, the flight returned to Middle Wallop and started the monotonous task of boxing all the kit, including the aircraft, for dispatch by sea to Japan. The flight arrived in Japan in late September, and although very much on its own as an RAF unit, it quickly got to work at RAAF Iwakuni, where the Australians could not have been more helpful, also eager to assist with the Royal Navy, who had their reserve aircraft in store there. By mid-October 1913, flight was ready to move. The vehicles and ground personnel were loaded onto a ship in Cure, which by a piece of good fortune had on board as OC troops one Captain White, 
who had been in A Squadron up until 1949. The crossing to Pusan on the southern point of the Korean Peninsula was smooth enough, but a further sea passage was to follow in tank landing craft from Pusan to Incheon in order to save the party the rather haphazardous journey up to the battle area. The aircraft, meanwhile, were able to cross the sea under escort of a Sunderland flying boat and eventually arrived at Seoul on the 8th Army airstrip, which in former days had been the Seoul racecourse. The move up to the battle area was delayed a couple of days while a new strip was being prepared to support the Commonwealth Division during its advance, but at last the flight was able to advance, the vehicles moving up through the shattered village of Wujongbu and arriving in a heavy drizzle on the site of the new strip on the edge of the Imjin River. The location, which was merely a patch of paddy and pinpointed by latitude and longitude, was given the codename Fort George. As a strip, it was quite the worst that the flight had ever seen. Vehicles sank up to their axles in mud, and the moment an aircraft touched down, it threw up a shower of muddy water which almost completely blinded the pilot, whose main concern was then to keep the aircraft on the strip. The landing run was no more than 20 yards and gave the pilot the feeling of having landed aboard a fleet carrier. Taxiing could be carried out only at full throttle, and after six aircraft had landed, it was apparent they were not going to get off again until some very drastic action had been taken to improve the surface. The Canadian sappers proved their resourcefulness by obtaining some drums of napalm from an American airbase, and after aircraft and vehicles had been removed to a safe distance, flooding the strip with this highly combustible mixture. A very light was then fired at the strip, which reluctantly began to burn and eventually baked into a hard surface on which aircraft were able to take off and land. Soon 1913 flight was joined by 1903 flight, which moved forward to support the advance. The flights occupied opposite ends of the strip and combined their respective messes, though both units were operationally entirely independent. Much valuable experience had been gained by the gunner flight during its few weeks in the theatre, and this experience was handed on to the glider pilots, who were keen to take on the recce role over the line. No definite role had been laid down for the light liaison flight, and the GOC gave the flight commander almost carte blanche to develop his task as he saw best. General running about to the staff was obviously a big requirement, and the flight set to with passenger carrying on rear strips, dispatch runs, and numerous other tasks that the staff suddenly found could be carried out by this new flight. Captain Downward, the flight commander, was keen to use his flight to more effect, and gradually a recce role was built up in support of the infantry and armour. This had the effect of relieving the Air OP flight of the task of taking up passengers during shoots, many of which were two and a half hours duration. The glider pilots, as mentioned earlier, being basically infantrymen, were able to give valuable assistance to the numerous infantry unit and patrol commanders who wished to see only one particular part of the front. The liaison and understanding of the forward units was further improved by two or three day visits from the individual pilots. Pilots found that they were adopted by their own favoured units in the line, and conversely pilots were keen to support those units when there was a call for air recce. Flying over the Korean front was reminiscent of aerial warfare in the 1914-18 war. Sorties were carried out between five and 7,000 feet, and looking down from aircraft, the perfect demarcation of the line could clearly be seen by the large amount of digging and earthworks on both sides the communists favouring long communication trenches which stretched for miles back into the rear areas. Binoculars were invaluable for examining the ground and with the help of aerial photographs much valuable information was collected by the pilots. Aerial recce for the untrained observer could be a complete waste of time unless he was fully briefed and constantly orientated throughout the sortie by the pilot. Normally anyone taken up for the first time in a light aircraft had not the slightest idea of the direction he was facing or where to compare his map with the ground. 
Aerial photographs again proved to be extremely helpful. 1913 flight remained in Korea for some time after the armistice in 1953, under the command of Captain P.F. Wilson and later Captain M. Hickey, until its return to the UK. With the armistice and the return of prisoners came Sergeant Cameron, who was shot down a few weeks earlier and who, together with his passenger, had managed to bail out. Happily, one of the Air OP flight also returned from a similar, though longer, experience as a POW. Of the number of officers and sergeants who were not absorbed into the 1st Independent Squadron of the Glider Pilot Regiment, a few were asked if they would like to assist the Air OP squadron operating in Malaya, where terrorist activities in the jungle were hotting up and the call for light aircraft support for the security forces was increasing steadily. Two officers and four sergeants were diverted to Austers and duly dispatched to 656 Air OP Squadron RAF in Malaya, where they were able to take on a valuable share of the task of searching the vast areas of jungle for the communist terrorists' hideouts. Captain D.T. Young, one of the two officers, was the first glider pilot after the war to win the DFC, and Sergeant J. Hutchings, the first to win the DFM. Although it was not realised at the time, these few officers and NCOs were the pioneers of a new flying unit in the British Army, which was ultimately to play a big part in producing the present-day Army Air Corps. In Malaya, two flights of 656 Aero P Squadron RAF had gradually been built up with the above-mentioned new pilots from the Glider Pilot Regiment. Eventually, with their own Glider Pilot flight commanders, they became so completely Red Beret that it was thought best to rename the flights as Light Liaison Flights instead of Aero P. And so, 1907 and 1911 flights were renamed and the squadron itself became 656 Air OP Light Liaison Squadron RAF. The work this squadron did in the Malayan emergency was of immense value to the security forces, pilots flying a great many hours, sometimes up to 100 hours per month during intensive operations, the results of the searches and recce being proportionately rewarding. To spread the load as much as possible, flights were rotated around the five strips every few months. This meant that no flight was banished for too long to an outlandish strip, while another enjoyed a more comfortable station, such as the Royal Naval Air Station, HMS Simbang on Singapore. Although not actively engaged in an all-out shooting war, as in Korea, the flying task was no less hazardous. A considerable amount of night flying was carried out, and pilots target-marked with flares suspected terrorist hideouts in order that bomber aircraft could strike the enemy where he was most likely to be concentrated. Whether the bombing was effective in causing casualties to the terrorists was rarely discovered. Nevertheless, it did cause the enemy discomfort and eventually forced the terrorists to abandon their hideouts and, most valuable of all, the cultivated plots which provided the main part of their daily food. Jungle flying unfortunately took its toll of two old glider pilots. Staff Sergeant Gay was killed while flying in the Johor area and Sergeant Perry disappeared without trace over the jungle of northern Malaya. Actually, the wreckage of Perry's aircraft was discovered purely by chance some six years later. To be forced down in the jungle is one of the biggest fears of pilots operating in this type of terrain, for the jungle reveals absolutely nothing of what is on the ground below it. Trees up to 200 feet high would merely close over a crashed aircraft, as if nothing had happened, while from the ground the picture was little better, as patrols often passed within yards of wreckage that had been swallowed up by the incredibly thick foliage. One glider pilot NCO who achieved local fame in the early days of the emergency was Sergeant Webb. Having crashed into the jungle after an engine failure, he set to with his passenger to build a raft on the bank of a main river, which they managed to reach and then sailed downstream until they reached civilization. This was an outstanding example of resourcefulness and cool thinking, which undoubtedly saved their lives. Another walk out from the jungle was made by Sergeant McConnell, who, having crashed and been partially injured, 
with an open wound in one of his legs, hacked his way out of the jungle until he came to a Dayak community some 21 days later. He could not have survived for much longer, for he was by then considerably weakened from the effect of his injuries and lack of food. McConnell's determination to survive was certainly what brought him through this very hazardous ordeal. By late 1956, plans were afoot for the army to own and operate its own aircraft, and these were to include helicopters. It was apparent that the days of the glider pilot regiment were numbered. In early 1957, Major Downward handed over command of the regiment to its last CO, Major M.W. Sutcliffe, who had the regrettable task of closing the regiment down eight months later, on the 31st of August 1957. The light liaison role joined forces with the Aero P role, and from this was born the new Army Air Corps, which started its existence on the 1st of September 1957. The close down of the regiment was marked by a farewell ceremony at Middle Wallop in rather dismal weather conditions. The rain, however, failed to prevent the last flypast at the tail, of which came the regimental flag, towed by a Skeeter helicopter flown by Major Furnival. The helicopter rose into the air and set course for the military college Sandhurst. In front of me sat two officers of the glider pilot regiment, and beside me sat Major Peter Downward, DFC. As I looked at the three red berets, I realised that this was a unique moment. The fact that these pilots were all helicopter pilots, but sported the regimental badge of the glider pilot regiment, was significant. I had witnessed a full turn of fortune's wheel, and as we sped through the sky I was deeply moved. My mind sped back to a day, 14 odd years before, when I arrived at Tillshead Camp on Salisbury Plain. I was alone there, but for my batman, Alec Gall. It was here that I was to form the nucleus of the glider pilot regiment. That was in January 1942, nine months after the German airborne invasion of Crete, in which the Germans had used an insignificant number of gliders and, as a result, had achieved nothing of lasting merit. I was destined to see the full development of airborne forces and the crushing defeat of the German army at the Rhine crossing. Now the glider's life was ended, and I was sitting in a helicopter piloted by the last of the glider pilot regiment. We circled the military college, and down below I could see row upon row of cars belonging to the generals, who were all attending the same ceremony as I. We landed on the cricket pitch, and Peter Downward and I stepped to the ground. Surprise was complete, for I was mistaken for a royal personage, and when it was found out I was not, there was hell to pay. There is little to add. On the 31st of August 1957, the Glider Pilot Regiment, now disbanded, merged with the flying OP, Royal Artillery, and the new Army Air Corps was born. The experience had proved one thing to be true, that the wartime motto of the regiment was no exaggeration. Nothing is impossible. People have often asked, why should we have an Army Air Corps? What was wrong with the old system where the Royal Air Force was responsible for the aircraft, the servicing and the pilot training? Admittedly, there might be some justification for thinking that this is just another air force that could do little to improve the doctrine administered by such an experienced service as the RAF. Prior to 1957, particularly in the 1939-45 to war years, such a feeling might well have been true, but by 1957 it was outstandingly clear that the Royal Air Force's task was far removed from the days of fabric-covered light aircraft and operating from grass fields. The high-performance jet aircraft presented an entirely new conception of aerial warfare. Since the days of the 1418 war, when aircraft first made their appearance in support of the army, it has been a common sense point of view that the most intimate support came from pilots or observers experienced in the ground role. To the sceptic mind, this may appear superfluous, for all that is required is to teach an airman the principles of the soldier's task and let him get on with it. 
Here at last we come to the vital point. One may be able to teach the principles of soldiering, but one can never substitute the experience of that trade. It must be remembered that the army aircraft is in no way intended to be an offensive weapon requiring the highly skilled operation of a pilot trained to deliver a costly or highly lethal bomb or missile. To the army, the light aircraft or helicopter is primarily a means of conveyance which provides the soldier with a further means of mobility or a platform from which to improve his observation. In this modern age, with the whole military concept a slave to automation and technical know-how, the task of the commander is now far too complicated for one man to perform without the advice of a team of experts. One of these must now be the army pilot. The AeroP organisation of the Royal Artillery proved from its early conception that the most efficient direction of the guns by aerial observation came, not unnaturally, from a gunner. Although this point is so obvious, it was frequently ignored or forgotten when discussing the merits of airman versus soldier as pilot in support of the ground forces. With the start of the light liaison in 1951, the advantage of the soldier as an aerial support to other arms outside the Royal Artillery became firmly established in Korea and Malaya. There is no mystery connected with the army pilot to enable him to do this. It is essential that he remains at all times primarily a soldier and secondly an aviator. He must be as much a part of the ground forces as the officer or NCO in the forward observation post or the recce troop commander in the armoured car. He must be able to appreciate the ground situation, to advise the commander or even to guide the junior NCO about to take out a patrol or even to nurse him through his mission by keeping in contact from the air. Do not feel that the flying side of the task is considered as unimportant or that the army pays any less attention to the quality of its pilots than does the RAF. The pilots, who are all volunteers, are carefully selected in accordance with the RAF standards for aircrew suitability and are further screened by an army board for suitability as soldiers. The potential pilot is then trained in accordance with the Army Air Corps syllabus and after nine months training at Middle Wallop, the fledgling is then turned out fully qualified to operate from the shortest of strips to low fly, navigate, establish communications and perform his task as a soldier. The Army aeroplane, whether a conventional aircraft or a helicopter, must be regarded purely as a vehicle from which the soldier performs his task. Of the men that fly these aircraft, most are officers and the balance are NCOs, and like the old glider pilot regiment and the Air OP organisation, all are volunteers. A large number of pilots come from the Royal Artillery, the Royal Armoured Corps and the Infantry Line Regiments, besides many from the Corps and Services. The maintenance of the aircraft is the responsibility of the REMI, though it is not unusual to see sailors and airmen working alongside the craftsmen in all Army Air Corps units worldwide. This is purely a temporary measure to tide over the shortage of technicians. Unlike modern air forces, the essence of Army aviation must be simplicity of equipment and operating techniques. The Army pilot, as always, must be an individual prepared to fly, work and fight with the troops that he supports. There can be no reliance on black boxes, navigational devices and ground-operated aids in time of war, particularly in the forward areas. And to this end, the army pilot is trained to fly his fixed-wing aeroplane or helicopter, relying on his own strength, intelligence and courage. Because the requirements are exacting, the standard of man in the Army Air Corps is high. On visiting an Army Air Corps unit, one cannot fail to notice the high morale and keenness that are always the hallmark of any volunteer force. There is an air of efficiency and a professional approach to their very wide selection of tasks. Any glider pilot regiment veteran of the last war would see little change in the pilots in the blueberries of 1962 to the generation of 20 years earlier who built up the 1st Army Air Corps. The men who took in the gliders 
laden with troops, anti-tank guns, vehicles and ammunition to Sicily, Normandy, Arnhem and the Rhine. There is still that same pride in their unit which stems from one quality, unfortunately lacking in so many young men of today. A pride in oneself. They fly well, but, as they will show you, they don't need to tell you, they are soldiers, and soldiers of the highest quality and integrity. The men of the old Glider Pilot Regiment and the old Air OP can be proud of their successors and can rest assured that their good name is in safe hands. Postscript. I am writing the conclusion to this book in May 1962. The world is now in a strange and terrible situation. Both sides of the Iron Curtain face each other stalemated, for the moment by the terrible weapons to hand. I was recently privileged to visit the HQ of our deterrent force. It was an awe-inspiring experience, but my most overwhelming impression was of the dedication of the flying and ground personnel. There is no let-up night and day, and the inspiration of this force is the preservation of peace. This is the guiding principle. The entire force is fully aware that it has the means of world annihilation at its disposal, if that means were ever to be used, so that there is little to hope for once the die is cast. Yet because of this knowledge, their spirit and discipline is of the very highest order. It is the same spirit that prevailed on the Air Force 30 years ago, the spirit which is described in the opening to this book and which is common to nearly all voluntary forces. It is not often realised that all the flying personnel of the RAF were volunteers throughout the war, as were the pilots of the Glider Pilot Regiment. The Glider Pilot Regiment is no more, for the Army Air Corps has now absorbed it, as it has the flying OP Royal Artillery. Yet it was the regiment that first made the Army air-minded and paved the way for the present AAC, now complete with its own light aircraft and helicopters. The Army of today has a new function and needs a new outlook to go with it, it must be prepared to move as rapidly as is possible to prevent minor campaigns from developing into a major war. Thus, both the Army and the RAF have vital roles to play, not in the making of war, but in its localisation and suppression. It is obvious that this new outlook will always require men of vision and courage. Understandably and rightly, the coming generation is preoccupied with what is now the stark necessity of keeping the peace. But I know, through dealing with many youth organisations over a long period, one of the most important things which young people still require is adventure. I feel sure that such organisations as the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme, which includes the Outward Bound and similar schemes, must be of the utmost importance to this country. The young men of the Glider Pilot Regiment step forward to volunteer, impelled by a craving for adventure. The young men of today feel this craving just as acutely. The art of flying, including sports such as skydiving by parachute gliding and of course powered flight, are among the most logical modern means of fulfilling that craving. Perhaps I might end this postscript by quoting the words which are painted in platinum paint on the memorial to the Glider Pilot Regiment in St Martin in the Fields. This memorial is the head and shoulders of a young pilot, and beneath it is one of the last flags to fly at the mast. To the memory of a regiment which died in name only, but left its spirit, service, behind. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward, find your own way, make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy, but discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 